All right. Well, so good to see everybody this evening. We doing okay? Good? Rock and roll. We invite you to grab a Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have one, it'll be on the screen. But Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be tonight. And it's where we're going to be, Lord willing, the next couple weeks. You'll see on the screen there the phrase, fasting for feasting. There's two reasons we have this phrase before you tonight. The first reason is a secret reason that I'm not going to tell you just yet. I'm going to keep you in suspense just a few moments longer. We're going to have a fun, big announcement toward the end of our service here. That's the first reason you see that phrase, fasting for feasting. The second reason that you see that phrase before you tonight is because we are three weeks away from the season of Lent. And Lent is a season of fasting that precedes Easter. And there are three classic disciplines or rhythms in the season of Lent. And it's not as fun and magical as Advent, but it is a serious and important time in the life of the global church. And these are the three practices of Lent. The first is giving to the needy. And this is on the screen here. And the second is prayer or praying. And then the third is fasting. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, where I invited you to turn this evening, Jesus talks about giving to the needy, and then he talks about prayer, and then he talks about fasting. Jesus teaches his followers not just to give and pray and fast, Jesus teaches us how to give and pray and fast. And what we're going to see this evening, I hope, is what Jesus nails home in each of these three disciplines, and that is this. Our motive matters. Our motive matters when we give. Our motive matters when we pray. Our motive matters when we fast. And what I hope we'll see this evening is our audience matters too. Our audience matters too. There's a refrain in each of these sections in Matthew 6 that we'll be looking at, Lord willing, in the next three weeks before Lent begins, Ash Wednesday, March 6th, and that six-week season of giving, praying, and fasting. But in Matthew chapter 6, the familiar refrain is that don't do it to be seen for all these crowds. Do it for your Father who sees you in secret. And that's where we're headed. Our motive matters. The audience matters. So let's look in Matthew chapter 6 and hear the words of Jesus in the middle of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness, or perhaps your Bible says piety, in front of others in order to be seen by them. If you do, You'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others, because truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But, again, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what's done in secret, he will reward you. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. Now, chances are you have fallen prey to a syndrome that millions of Americans suffer with daily. It's an unspoken monster in our country. And it's time that I shed some light on it. And what it is, is the Facebook highlight real syndrome. This is a real problem gripping millions of Americans, and I need to talk about it. I have the guts to talk about it tonight. And here's what I mean. Perhaps you've succumbed to this syndrome after hours and hours and days and days of scrolling and swiping and looking at people's Facebook statuses, and you see their amazing trips, right? Who has seen an amazing trip in your friend's feed this week? And you're a little jelly, right? It's 30 degrees and the weather won't make up its mind. And you're like, I wish I was at Disney World. Or you've seen the thousands and thousands of cute kid pictures. Whether it's the first day of school or graduation or lost their first tooth. Or you've seen the thousands and thousands of cute pet pictures. Which would be dogs because there are no cute cats. That's an oxymoron. Sorry, Broncos. It's a fact, especially with regard to Facebook highlight reel syndrome. Hey, this was Valentine's Day this week, so you probably saw a lot of wonderful dates of wonderful partners. And they go to the best restaurants, and they do these amazing things. You've seen awards. You've seen promotions. You've seen all the highlights of our friends' lives. Now, that's not wrong. That's not bad. But if you're living and looking and consuming this day in, day out, sometimes, even in the most low grade of ways, the Facebook highlight reel syndrome sets in. And what it looks like is this. Man, everyone else's life rocks. My life stinks. Amy downloaded a book by a woman named Annie F. Downs. And she got it for free, and she thought she'd give it a listen, and she shared with me what Annie says. She says, we need to be careful not to compare their highlight reels to our behind the scenes. See, the problem with the Facebook highlight reel syndrome is that we don't see the other millions of moments throughout the day. We don't see the fact that their dog that was so cute in that picture also tow up that bill, that mail, that pillow, We don't see the cute kids that barely graduated and the six months before that when they were struggling just to get across the stage. We don't see the late nights and the middle of the nights, the wet beds and the runny noses. And you know what I'm saying. I'm preaching to the choir. You live it, but you don't see it. And I know, I just got a hunch that if Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he would have to address this obsession with recognition and this obsession with measuring ourselves against other people. And i got to wonder if Jesus would not have said something like, be careful not to compare your behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel, for they post in order to be seen by others. Now, these people are not wrong and evil and horrible to share these things. Please hear me. And Facebook is not wrong and evil and horrible. By the way, we have all our church stuff on Facebook. 
I talk to you in our Facebook group, and you talk to each other in your Facebook groups. There's a few of you that recognize the tendency of Facebook to do something evil in your own heart in the Facebook syndrome. I want to honor that and recognize that. But the Facebook syndrome exists because there is this human desire that is natural, and it's a human desire for recognition. We like Pats on the back. We need affirmation. Again, not wrong. But Facebook has a tendency of elevating, highlighting, and making us feed and fuel the likes and the thumbs up. Jesus and his followers and the religious guard of his day didn't have Facebook. But what they did have was what Jesus mentions, the synagogues, the streets, And there is a religious group called the Pharisees that were like the moral majority on steroids. The moral majority was a pressure group that began in the late 70s and early 80s to try to influence the culture in such a way to impose Judeo-Christian values and morals into our society. Again, it's not wrong, but there's a way in which the Pharisees went about it that cared more about the crowds than their own hearts. And so when they would give, they would try to give big and make a big show of it. Jesus talks about this elsewhere in the Gospels. Y'all remember the widow's coin? Jesus is always talking about this. And then next week, Lord willing, Pastor Kathy's gonna talk about prayer, and we've talked about this in the past. He says, don't go praying like them where they want to do their big, flowery, amazing, and inspirational prayers. I bet they would post those things on Facebook too. I've posted prayers on Facebook. But again, tonight we're going to talk about why our motive matters. They didn't have Facebook then, but they sure had this innate human desire to crave recognition. The problem is when the desire for recognition overshadows the desire for the one who loves us, and we don't have to earn it. So Jesus does what he always does, and he moves beyond the surface actions to the heart because Jesus wants to transform us from the inside out. You hear me? Behavior modification will never change your soul, and you need to know that. You can give and pray and fast till the cows come home, but it won't change your heart. It can help you to sink in and get into the rhythms of life in Jesus, but if your heart is far from him, Jesus says elsewhere, you're just like a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but inside you're dead and you're dying. Our motives matter. Jesus wants to align our intentions and our actions Godward, not peopleward. So our focus statement this evening is this. Our motives matter. Jesus teaches us to point our intentions and our actions to God. When these things are out of balance, our life and our hearts and our worlds get out of, out of balance. We need to do not only the outward actions, but our heartward intentions. We need to direct them to God, who's the only audience who counts. Our motive matters. Jesus teaches us to point our intentions and actions to God, the only audience who counts. This is the refrain that we see each time in these classic Lenten practices. So I want to spend just a few more minutes making some observations around these three points. The first is our motives matter. And Jesus addresses that when he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness. And then we're going to say, well, okay, why? Why does it matter so much? I'm going to show you that it's a matter of life and death. And then the third question that we'll round home with 
is what Jesus talks about in verses 3 and 4. And that is how does Jesus teach us to give? How do we align our intentions and our actions? Y'all good? Y'all with me? Let's spend just a couple minutes talking about this passage we just read. Look back with me in verse 1 of chapter 6. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness or piety. I need you guys to know something. Jesus expected his followers to give, pray, and fast. Those three practices or spiritual disciplines were essential to the personal practices of holiness for God's people. In Israel, for Judaism, and for Jesus' followers that came out of that movement who are Christians. So giving, praying, and fasting is a big deal for Jews and Christians alike. Y'all want to know this? There are five pillars of Islam, three of them, guess what? Giving to the needy, praying, and guess what? Fasting. They still have fasting days. And where we live, down the road from like 40 uh, Mediterranean buffets, it is bumping when the fast breaks at sundown because they're serious about these things. It is part and parcel of a holy, righteous life. Jesus expects that at some point we're going to give to the poor, we're going to pray, and we're going to fast. Okay? Let's just get that out of the way. But he says, be careful not to do these things in order to what? Be seen. Right? So this is the motive. Now, here's the other trick. Some of you careful Bible readers might go back in your Rolodex of the Sermon on the Mount because it's famous and we talk about it a lot. And y'all know another famous verse in Matthew 5, verse 16. So if you have a Bible open, you can thumb the page back and look at that. Jesus, in the same sermon, says what? Let your light, what? Shine before who? People, so that they may what? See your good works. Oh, Mark, what did you just say? What's the difference? There's an apparent contradiction that is so silly and easily explained away with the last phrase of verse 16. And when they see it, they praise who? God. There is something about the way in which we do what we do and our motivations, I think, can get sniffed out a mile away. And there's a difference between practicing our righteousness in a way that comes from a transformed heart that transforms the world around us. And there's another way of doing it where I think people can smell a phony from a mile away. And why do you think people are distrusting of Christians? Oh, bless your heart. Well, we'll be praying for you. Okay. We love to say and do a lot of spiritual things. But the trick is what is our motivation? The other difference is, do they see it and give thanks to God? Or do they see it and give thanks to you? Now, he says, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And he talks about this in the next section. But effectively, well, let's just hang on to that. We'll talk about rewards in a moment. The, the trick is our motive matters. So Jesus then goes on. Because he expects us to do these kinds of things, he says, so when you give to the needy, 
Don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Again, to be honored by others. Now, here's what's really interesting. Scholars think that the very first time that Jesus, uh, excuse me, the very first time the word hypocrites got used in a moral sense was with Jesus. How many of you have heard beyond church, a man, you're a hypocrite. How many of you see that in the news? Man, he's a hypocrite. He says this and he does that. This is so common. This is ubiquitous in our culture. Scholars think that Jesus was the first one to pull that term and put it into a moral, ethical sphere. That's interesting to me. The other interesting thing is that Jesus is the only one to use that phrase in the New Testament. 17 times he uses it. Now, poor Christians, what is one of the most egregious like things that people say, I don't like Christians because they're what? Hypocrites. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus originated this word to condemn the religious people. Listen to this. When the culture uses that word, who are they c- condemning? Religious people. Religious people who act or perform. The word hypocrite is a word for actor. And what Jesus is talking about, is it not that very thing? Beware, when they give, they sound the trumpet. Here I am, and I present you with the big check that you get at the end of the golf tournament. Here's my name, make sure it goes on the building. Thank you very much. They're performing, and they're seeking to be honored by others. They're seeking to get the pats on the back. And so no wonder when Jesus says they've received their reward in full. No wonder, like we just looked at a moment ago, they're not going to get anything from their Father in heaven. Why would Jesus say that? Because what they wanted, they got. If what I wanted was the praise of others, thank you very much, God, I don't need you, God is perfectly content to stay out of it. Because you're going to do these religious things in my name and have no heart, no motivation, no uh, sense of relationship with me. Man, you're getting what you want. You don't need me. This is why they should not expect a reward. I want to, since we're talking about rewards, I'll tell you, at the end of this passage, Jesus doesn't say they should just do it to do it, forget the reward. No. Three times in this cycle of giving and praying and fasting, what's fascinating is Jesus says, no, 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 your father who sees you, the only audience that matters, he sees you, he's going to reward you. He sees in secret and he's going to reward you. Listen, y'all, Jesus doesn't run from rewards. That's weird to me. It's weird growing up and we just sang three songs about grace. It's weird thinking about this idea that we'll still get more stuff. But here's the trick. Jesus didn't say what the reward is. And that's, I think, important. I think what Jesus, when he's talking about our motives, he's trying to form us into the kinds of people who know that relationship with God is reward enough. So don't shy away from, what am I going to get? Jesus doesn't shy away from it. He didn't tell you what it's going to be, but he's trying to form you into people that have an eye towards something that God's going to bless you. God's going to reciprocate, but he's trying to form us into the kinds of people who know that relationship with God is reward enough. He wants to form us into the kinds of people that realize we don't have to go and earn what's already been given, which is why the second question is so vital. Why do our motives matter? It's a matter of life and death. And I want to give you this question. What's my motive? What's my intent? Now let me help you. Think about coming here 
to our worship gathering. Think about going to the clothes closet like you did this morning. Think about the people you interacted with, you prayed with, you helped, you laughed with, smiled, and welcomed. Think about this Wednesday when you go and fight the traffic and try to get out the door with your food and go to your neighborhood group and you small talk and you talk life. Think about all the things that we do as God's people together and then put them through the filter of what's my intent? What's my motive? Now let's get real real. What's my intent when I give in these baskets? What's my intent when I go down to Austin Street What's my intent when I go and serve and talk with our homeless friends at our calling? Because that's Instagrammable, y'all. I think the way of discerning our motivations is determined by our desired outcome. Think about that. How you determine your motives is determined by the desired outcome. This is something that's self-evident, but it bears mentioning because sometimes naming things has a way of changing things. We determine our motives by determining the desired outcome. If I go and love the poor and serve them and give clothes, is it because I want this person or that person to get off my back? Is it because I want this person or that person to see me, to see me going the extra mile? Is it when I go down on the Mondays to feed 400 people so where I can go and say I fed 400 people? Is it when I go down to our calling to do something extreme and interesting and crazy for the Lord? If that's our desired outcome, Jesus has some strong words for us, but they're words to bring us life because if we keep chasing the fickle love of the audience of people we see and serve alongside the people we church with or the people we don't, the end is death. The end is never enough. The end is, well, it's some kind of attrition of the soul that Jesus wants to transform. This is why our motives matter so much. This is why our motives matter so much. And why Jesus addresses these classic religious disciplines. Here's the problem. Religion, and by religion I mean a system of ritual, a system of practices, a system of beliefs. The problem with religion is it has a way of squeezing God out. And the question would be, why do I need God when others can see me at the religious place and affirm how spiritual I am. Religion has a way of squeezing God out. They say, look, we've got what we need, the praise of men. Thank you very much, God. I'm not interested in doing these practices to grow in a relationship with you. That's not reward enough. They've got their reward. And here's the trick that brings home to us, and I want you to really think through this. When we start to get into that trap And for us, it may be a little more subtle. For us, it may be that the extent of our life with God is coming to hear me or Kathy or someone talk for a few minutes. And then we go on our merry way. I want to be really delicate, but I want to, I'm thinking of my own heart here, too. 
this is the way that we could squeeze God out of our lives and just expect for someone to have a relationship with God for us. And as long as people think that I'm still showing up and I'm still doing all right and I don't really need to bear my heart and my life and share it with others, well, well, I've got what I need. But it's this shaky ground of approval in the view of others. And if I'm loved because of what I do for others, then certainly God must be the same. So here's the other trap with religion. Y'all ready? Religion has a way of earning what God's already given. God, in his immense grace, with the great love with which he loved us that Shauna read earlier, has given you everything you need in Christ Jesus, and he's seated you in the heavenly realms. He has given you all of himself. He has given you his very self and the spirit of God, but we still want to show up and earn it because we feel guilty. Religion has a way of earning what God's already given. Why should God love me if I haven't done anything to deserve it? We can talk about and sing about and think about and read about and hear about God's grace, 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 but there is something still broken inside of every human heart that is restless until we can really rest in a love that is beyond measure that we'll never, never fully grasp and understand, and we will still try to earn it, and we will still not feel like we are good enough. But the good news that Jesus preached is that the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near, it's here, and he has come to critique the empty religious practices that breed nothing but death on the inside. You may look good on the outside, you may go through the motions, but what he wants is a renovation of the heart and nothing short of a reorientation of your whole life. He wants to resurrect the death inside of you, but you've got to give him a chance. And what Jesus did was not come into the already crowded religious buffet and says, Islam, that would come centuries later, they've got their five pillars, they've got the Quran, they've got their this, and Jews, we've got 613 laws, and all I need to do is tweak this or tweak that or just elevate this and elevate that. No, no, no. Jesus came, and he fulfilled, and he moved beyond it. He didn't just say, here's my little piece of the puzzle in the crowded buffet. Jesus came to clear the table and say, forget this, I'm putting all of it around me. Read the Gospel of John. All of their sacred religious ideas and illustrations and practices, Jesus took, reoriented around himself. You think the temple is great, you think sacrifices is great, guess what? The Jews didn't invent sacrifice. In the Sumerian times, before them, Abraham wasn't the first. It goes way back because there's something about the human heart that wants to earn it. All we've done is gussied it up and made it more technologically and enlightened savvy. No, no, no. This is something from square one, day one, human history. Jesus didn't come in to just add his little hat in the ring. He came to clear the buffet, to clear the table and say, come to me. So here's the trick. The end game of religion that would continue to persist on through human history, the end game of religion in that never-ending quest for recognition is the slow death of never good enough. 
It's a dead tree, and it was the first thing that got us screwed up at the beginning. Well, God, really, did he say? And I don't know. And man, you know, he really kind of withheld. And I want to know this, and I don't want to know that. From day one to the end of all time, if we continue to chase and earn, we're going to wind up with the slow death of never good enough. And the real insidious problem for us as followers of Jesus is we can be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, but we're down in the dumps because we're convinced that even though he said it, he doesn't mean it, that he actually loves us. So let me just tell you, over and over and over and over, the New Testament affirms on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is for freedom that you've been set free. So don't go back to the chains of slavery, the slavery of your mind and heart that says, I still got to earn what he's already given. Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus but I condemn myself and I just, oh, I just gotta do this. I just get, no, 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 no more condemnation. Okay, but I did this and I said that and I felt that. Read the end of Romans chapter eight. He says, I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor rulers nor principalities nor heaven nor earth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you this. I think the only place that you're separated from Christ is in your mind. I read this a few weeks ago from Richard Rohr, and I'm still trying to believe it. The only place you're separated from Christ is in your mind. That is the only place, period. I don't think it, I don't feel it. How do we get there? Create space. Be still. Let your voice and your self-talk just Keep going, keep going until it runs out of steam because First John, he says, when our own heart condemns us, God who's greater than our hearts will restore us. Finally, let yourself shut up and let the Spirit of God speak tenderly the voice of the one who calls you beloved. This is what I've been preaching every week in some way to myself and to you for years but we will never fully live and change the world out there if we don't allow him to change us in here. We will always be dying of never good enough. Let me invite you to the abundant life of always loved more than enough. I can never outpreach how much God loves people. Jesus died for people. Jesus died for murderers and thieves and liars and phonies and fakes and fighters and gay, straight, or otherwise. He loves people desperately. He looks out and sees eight billion little image bearers, children of God, who have gone a long way and are sure acting like they ain't. So he says to us who know and live in and lean into more than enough abundant life, he says you need to get out and announce to the world, be reconciled to God. God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ Jesus, but they're going out thinking that they still have to earn it, and they're killing themselves. Go out there and say, the kingdom of God is right here. Be reconciled. Stop. You're killing yourself. 
You keep going back to the dirty water. You keep going back to that dirty well. It's killing you from the inside out. Jesus has come to transform us from the inside out. Don't earn it. So how? Jesus says, when you give, when you do, you've heard of forgive and forget. He says give and forget. And he wants to transform us in the kinds of people for whom it's second nature to love indiscriminately. He wants to transform us into the kinds of people that can talk freely with the one he calls Abba. But here we go trying to figure out what to call God and Almighty and Hallowed in this. And Jesus does teach us how to pray with reverence and respect. But the Spirit of God testifies that we can also call him Abba. That your giving may be in secret. I'll leave you with this as an invitation this week. As that third piece of how Jesus invites us to give, to give and forget. But Richard Foster says there's a spiritual discipline of secrecy. And I think if we were to add a fourth to the list of giving, praying, and fasting, maybe this would be a good fourth. It's like the fifth beetle, Pete Best. Everybody kind of knows he's there, but he's not really named. (laughs) Richard Foster says the discipline of secrecy is this. Consciously refraining from having our good deeds and qualities generally, or I'd say publicly, known. Which in turn, listen to this, rightly disciplines our longing for recognition. We get screwed up when our actions and our intentions are out of balance. That's what we spent the first part of our talk talking about. Our motives matter. So if we can bend our motives back, if we can determine why am I doing this, I think we can find that proper balance. And it disciplines our longing for recognition, a longing that's good, a longing to be known, a longing to be acknowledged, a longing to be seen. That's good. That's human. That's fine. But it's when that takes the cake. But if we were to love God with all of our heart with all of our mind, with all of our soul and strength, I believe that our hands, our actions will follow. And that's what Jesus is getting at. So may we let our motives matter. And Jesus, would you teach us to point our intentions and our actions to God, the only audience who counts. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful For the incredible love, see what great love the Father has shown us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. But what we are, the world doesn't know because they don't know Jesus. So Lord, would they know Jesus, when they see him for who he is, the Prince of Peace, the one who embodies and is full of grace and truth, the one who embodies the very face of God whom the image of the invisible God was pleased to dwell, to walk among us, amongst prostitutes and sinners and thieves, just to really prove to us how nothing can separate us if we stick close and hang out with you. Help us. 
Help us even now with the self-talk that says, yeah, but this isn't going to make any difference and nothing's really going to change. Lord, help us. Help us to quiet those voices that we would hear the voice of the Spirit calling us beloved, calling us, inviting us to reach out to Abba, Father, who loves us more than we could ever ask or imagine. So help us as we give, to give forgetfully, trusting that in you, you can multiply anything we give. And that the knowledge of you and relationship with you is reward enough. But if you see fit to bless us more, would we be grateful recipients of even more grace upon grace upon grace upon grace? So help us, Lord. Teach us to pray. Teach us to fast so that we can tune in to what you're up to. That we may go and be reconcilers to the ones you've already reconciled. Will we wake them up to the invitation to step into relationship and life with you. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Amen. Now, if y'all would please rise and receive the benediction. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.